From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Michael, when you undertake an MGI study, how many years of data on average do you think you try to gather? Well, ideally millennia, but I mean, seriously, I guess it depends on the topic. But we're really looking for a you know, sufficient time period so we can get a solid perspective of the trends as they've unfolded. In the case of tech, where I do a lot of my work and where things move pretty fast, it might be difficult to get comparative figures for more than, say, 20 or 30 years. Yeah, that, I mean, that sounds reasonable in the case of tech. But I tell you, a key study that our podcast guest today worked on has compiled data back to, wait for it, the 14th century. And that's a study to explore the economic aftermath of wars and pandemics. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, I was just joking about millennia, but I'm really excited to hear about what they found. Welcome to the podcast, Alan. Hello, Janet. Thanks for having me on. Well, you're welcome. So I want to start with a bit about you. You read maths at Cambridge and you had took your PhD in economics from Harvard. How did you end up in California as your career? I seem to remember in my final year at Cambridge, uh, I went to talk to one of the tutors and he gave me some advice. I was thinking of going to do a PhD in the States or to study in the States. And uh, he, he just said, go west, young man. And I guess I just kept on doing that and kept going in the same direction. But a combination of personal and professional opportunities just, you know, dragged me in this direction with my family. So, you know, I, I've ended up here. Do you, do you think of yourself nowadays as a Californian? It, it, yeah, strangely enough. I mean, it is the place where I've lived the longest. So eventually it rubs off on you. And yeah, it's it's not a bad place to, to roll into. You keep rolling downhill and you end up on the, on the West Coast and looking around. I don't know. Very few people seem to leave. They just get, get stuck here. So when you think of yourself as an economist, what kind of economist do you think you are? And what do you find so fascinating about it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I'd list my main field, I suppose, now as, as macroeconomics, but that that that's a big catch-all term. It, it can mean something very narrow. You work on an area. I tend to be a bit broader than most, which may be to my detriment. I, I do quite a lot of work that's international, that overlaps with finance, that, and a lot of my approach is empirical and uses historical data. I do t- tend to have my 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 feet in in many different places which is sometimes you know it, it means my projects take a long time or there's there's a lot of connections to be drawn but i am i i, I feel that i'm i'm kind of interdisciplinary but with a major focus on on i guess macro and finance and i mean you talked about going back in history and one of your very well-known works studies the rates of return on assets actually back to the 14th century and it focuses on 15 major pandemics and significant armed conflicts. And obviously that's incredibly relevant to the era that we're in now. You found that the after effects can last for about 40 years. Can you tell us, it's slightly pessimistic for us now, but can you tell us more about that analysis? Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's kind of a a paper that's emblematic of the way I approach a lot of questions. And credit has to be given to the original work of others that 
you know, uh, culminating with a colleague at the Bank of England who's now been at a postdoc at Yale, Paul Schmelzing. He'd collected a lot of data on interest rates going back to the, the 14th century, including deep down some, some work by my UC Davis colleague, Greg Clark and others. Lots of people have been interested in studying that. I mean, you think of Smith or Ricardo and Marx and the classical economists, they were very concerned about the rate of profit and the rate of return and how it was changing over time. So this is an enduring question, but getting the data to be able to study the very long run and to study rare events like pandemics and wars, you're kind of just statistically trapped unless you can get an extremely large data set because these events are not so numerous. So um, that was work I did with my colleagues, Oscar Jordan and Sanjay Singh at Davis. And the goal was to look at medium-term responses. We know that over time, rates of return have been falling for centuries, we think, Presumptively, they can't just go infinitely negative in the very long run, but they've been coming down towards zero, and maybe the real return has even nudged below zero. We may talk about that a little bit later. But here the focus was on what happens in the decades after these major disruptions, either coming from pandemics and wars. And the interesting finding or main finding was after pandemics, the rate of return tends to be depressed. After wars, it tends to be elevated. So that kind of goes in the opposite direction. So one point was to just say, you know, we can't think about these two events as being similar. And I guess the economic intuition is, at least historically, pandemics tended to destroy the labor force. Wars tended to destroy the capital stock. And so, at least to a neoclassical economist, it would kind of make sense that after a pandemic, labor is scarce and wages are gonna go up, and that's going to be adverse for, for capital owners. And in fact, you know, the very greatest pandemic of all, the Black Death, our, our colleagues over in history departments have written about the social and economic, economic after effects of, of the Black Death, particularly in England, leading to a lot of political disruption, reflecting the shift in bargaining power between, between those groups. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting to, go through the data, do all these econometric exercises and end up kind of in that place that, that lined up with what the historians have been saying based on the narrative sources. And on this point about labour scarcity, I mean, I guess with the Black Death or the Spanish flu, it was that a lot of people died, a lot. And that was part of the labour scarcity story. But something different possibly is happening this time, which is that People have taken stock of their lives and thought, I don't want to be on this treadmill anymore. I don't really like my job and I'm, I'm just going to just opt out. And there seems to have been that psychological response to the pandemic. What do you make of that? That's an interesting point. And I, I hadn't kind of maybe thought about the parallels there. I mean, the economic mechanism is withdrawal from the labour force. And from that standpoint, it doesn't mean, matter whether you're just exiting for a a happier life or exiting for the next life. But yeah, I think I think there may be there may be something to that way of thinking about it. Obviously the response we've had, you know, to within a year have a set of vaccines or some vaccines that work and we haven't seen the extremely potentially extremely large death tolls that were seen or mortality rates that were seen in prior pandemics. And there's also been a difference in the incidence by age. Say the Spanish flu was something that affected the children and young people a lot. COVID has affected elderly more. So that means differential impacts on the labor force as well. But yeah, we, we've had some kind of a labor force effect, bigger in some countries than others. I know from you know, listening to some, some policy discussions recently, Bank of England and others pointing out that Britain seems to have had a particular exit from the labor force. It's different in, in other advanced countries and elsewhere. 
I think the backdrop is also different demographically. I mean, if you go back to earlier centuries, certainly go back to the Black Death, the backdrop is Malthusian. You've got a population that's not growing very rapidly at all. And so it's an absolute decline. Today, we're against the backdrop of a still fairly rapidly growing global population. It's not like, so relative to the background trend, this may may have smaller effects. So there's a number of mitigating factors. It's, you know, we've, we've got a, a shock that affects mostly the old. We've got better medical and non-pharmaceutical responses to it to contain it. You know, we've got welfare state and so on and so forth. And we've a much stronger population growth rate trend in the background. So all of those things make it different. I mean, one of the frustrations, I guess, both doing large-scale quantitative history like this, both frustration for me as a practitioner and other people listening to it is, well, what's different this time? There's always like these exceptions, but I think that's what makes it interesting and intellectual challenge. Obviously, it's very early days. And I mean, you're looking at very long time scales. I mean, you, you talk about the natural rate of interest declining for decades after reaching the nadir about 20 years later, it ends up 150 basis points lower than had the pandemic not taken place. And then four decades later, it returns to where it would have been. So they're very, very long timescales. What I was interested about is that you and your fellow authors find say that you found this staggering. Why did you find that very long period of aftershocks staggering? What was surprising about it? I think it was just the, the kind of sheer persistence. I mean, I, I, I think perhaps that reflects the underlying biases of economists who think, well, you know, we may have a recession or change in some price or natural resource shock, but economies adjust. And we, we like to think or pretend that, well, those shocks are probably pretty quick because economies are resilient. And why would, why would a disequilibrium last for years or decades? But I think there is a countercurrent in economic thought, which maybe is getting a little bit more traction now. It maybe reflects to some degree the rise of behavioral economics, which is that some shocks leave an imprint in people's minds and, and behavior. Some of the famous research in empirical finance shows that, you know, depending on your maybe childhood or young adult experience, if you lived in good times or bad times, that shows up in your saving behavior as a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old. And that was the backdrop to the conclusion in our piece that if we focused on like the physical manifestations, you know, are people alive or dead? Are they in the workforce or not? What happens to capital? That's one, only one dimension of this that we're seeing. And maybe the, the thing that will really link all of these episodes across decades and centuries is more the behavioral response. Even if today we've got more survivors and less disruption, it is a, a psychological change for everyone who's lived through it. If I think of, you know, my parents, they were born in the Great Depression. They had a particular attitude about debt and being circumspect with finances and thinking in certain ways about, you know, what was uh, prudent. And and so maybe that was the, the final message at the end of the paper that we could have in response to this rise, well, the pandemic, but rise in global uncertainty for other reasons, political, you know, the war in Ukraine. We could be entering a period of more more precautionary attitudes on the part of people when it comes to to their finances. And that will show up in, in asset prices. There'll be more people 
trying to save, given the same investment opportunities, that's going to drive down the, the natural rate of interest for a different set of reasons. And that could be much more persistent than any technological or resource-driven shock. We've just been updating MGI's work on the global balance sheet, and we've seen that over, over the course of decades quadruple in size. And our early findings are that wealth on paper went up by another $100 trillion during the pandemic, so in 2020-2021, largely because of the amazing, you know, unprecedented support that governments felt that they had to give to sort of put a floor under economies. But interestingly, in in 2022, and, and let's come back to the war in Ukraine and, and how that sort of plays into all of this, but in 2022, we've just seen the global balance sheet shrink a little bit for the first time. It's difficult to disaggregate what's happening now, and it's very, very short term, from the pandemic and the war in Ukraine and a general rise in contentiousness in politics and the rest of it. But what do you make of sort of prospects of that sort of very sustained rise in the global balance sheet and whether we might be beginning to see something different happening? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of noise in the short run, and, and you know, you're gonna, you're asking me in a way to predict the future. I like to say, as an economic historian, gee, we, it's hard enough for us to predict the past, let, let alone the future. So now, obviously, 2022 markets have gone in kind of the opposite direction, as they do tend to sort of self-correct, and now, now we've probably taken a few trillion off the global wealth on paper. In the medium term, I, I think the previous. Um, point I was making kind of links into this, which is we, we do have more and more saving coming down the pipe all the time. We have inequality, rich people save. We have aging people, aging people save. We haven't just got that trend in the advanced economies. We've got that trend building up in more and more developed economies. I was just looking at your one of your publications on on global trends and just looking at age, the demography for India and China. China is going to age even beyond Europe and the US in the next 30 or 40 years, and India rapidly coming along. All of those populations are going to be saying, well, we need to try to make some provision for our retirement. There may be state pensions in some places, not in others. They may not be generous enough. There's going to be a desire to save, but of course that's going to get very crowded because you know, we're going to have billions of people all trying to save at the same time in more countries and more places. And, and that that's like an insatiable desire to hold assets. And who's gonna supply them? So the balance sheet is in a sense forced to grow. Maybe, maybe there'll be more equity, maybe there'll just be more debt. It's hard to make a prediction there. But that's why I think, you know, when you see rising debt, you have to sort of ask, why is it rising? I mean, there is obviously a supply of debt, so is it just crazy borrowing? But there's also a demand for it. Someone is willingly holding this. And uh, there's a tension between those those forces historically and, and, and going forward. So I think it will it will trend up. Just the last year or two, it's been a lot of whipsaw. The state had to step in during pandemics and take action. We're now going into a global maybe economic slowdown. So there's going to be different trends in emerging markets who maybe need to release or use their reserves and sovereign wealth funds. So they'll be selling assets to smooth out a different shock and. Other countries are doing temporary things to deal with the energy price shock. So a lot of that feels like short-term noise, whereas medium to long-term, I'm thinking, you know, where is the demand and supply for savings coming from? I think it's clear there's going to be a lot of supply for savings. Whether you think that will 
be offset by an increase in, in demand for savings? Are we going to have more expenditure on new technologies, on a green transition, on infrastructure that will soak that up and then some and, and perhaps bid up the interest rate? That's harder to say. I'm not seeing it yet, but it, I mean, we could end up there. If there's a lot of precautionary saving and you know, part, partly this psychological shift that we saw possibly in the pandemic, but going forward with a lot of noise and turbulence in the world. What does that say for growth? The baseline is that, that growth is going to be in a, a more sluggish position. So it, it does feel like with political conflict, both national and, and global, and living with the, again, we're back to hysteresis or persistence, the, the kind of drag of the global financial crisis, the austerity, the the sense that there was there was missed opportunities there to to get the economy going fast enough, and maybe you know we 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 foregone some learning, some innovation, some investments we could have made at the effects on people out of the workforce, or and now with the pandemic, children out of the classroom, there, there are going to be scarring effects from these major negative shocks that we that are completely out of proportion to what we've seen in. 2001 recession, 91 recession, 81, 82 recession, 73. I mean, we'd love to go back and have those recessions. Those were tiny little blips that didn't leave the same. I mean, maybe 81, 82 was a bad one. We thought that was awful at the time, but they didn't leave anything like the scarring effects. And, and I mean, maybe in some communities, some particular areas, like, like where I grew up in the, in the coal mining area of, of Yorkshire, in particular places, you could see that. But when the pandemic hits or the global financial crisis hits, it, it's like, you know, it's like Yorkshire everywhere. I mean, that's, that's really bad, right? And so it, it, it feels like we're, we're on a different different scale here and we, we can't fully see how, how quickly that will heal in the future. If it does, then maybe that will go side by side with government investment in, in the green technologies or in infrastructure or whatever, then we might see a, a more optimistic outcome. Aside from that, we just don't know what, what human ingenuity will, will produce. I mean, we didn't know the steam engine was coming or the silicon chip, but they came and suddenly, boom. One of the thoughts that came into my mind about the aftermath of pandemics, that some, something quite different is happening this time and it's how fast and furiously digitization is spreading across our our world and our economies and the way we live and i i don't know how that might affect things i mean clearly during the pandemic the digital technologies enabled people to work and businesses to run in a way that just wouldn't have been possible before in in, in a pandemic like that so i wonder whether digitization and advanced technologies and all the technology in our world changes the equation. It's hard to say. Obviously, we're here on this podcast and we're on different sides of the planet and the audio is incredibly good and you know we can do our Zooms and, and so forth. So I think all of that is probably a, 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 an offsetting benefit from what was otherwise you know, a very a very negative event, how it'll play out in helping us reorganize. I, I'm, I'm sure it's got to have a net a net positive benefit, but it, it, it may take some time for us to see where it will it will show up. There may be some big realignments going on economically in, in terms of how the global economy is organized. There's a lot of stress right now and, and political uncertainty about are we leaving behind the mythical earth is flat 
world where, where globalization was driven by economic arbitrage and less by concerns of, about politics and resiliency. Now it seems like, oh, well, you know, can we rely on that energy supplier? And can we, you know, is, is Russia really going to be reliable for gas or oil? Is China going to be reliable in terms of a political risk or COVID risk or some other issue that could disrupt these supply chains? So we had it fine-tuned for efficiency, but not very well thought out in terms of resiliency. So if all of that has to be rearranged, our technologies like, you know, the digitalization you've spoken of will will facilitate reorganizing our, our supply chain world in, in, in better ways, I would think. So it doesn't erase the difficulty of resetting all of those connections that that may still require investment in new plants and so on. And that's potentially a source for new investment and growth going forward. But it, it's at a cost. We're having to rethink. We're, we're absorbing costs now to defray uncertainty in the future. So it's it's not an investment necessarily for growth per se, it's an investment for reduced risk, which is important. MGI recently published a paper which asked, are we on the cusp of a new era? So we looked at post-war history to try and ascertain what today's turbulence means and, and what might, you know, come ahead. And we found three similar periods that we call earthquakes. And so that was the immediate aftermath of World War II, the the oil crisis in the early 70s, and then the breakup of the Soviet empire in the late 80s. And like like an earthquake, each one changed the global landscape with the sudden release of powerful underlying forces that had been building up around a fault line. And they had the effect of sort of changing the rules of the game, if you like, the, the, the key features of our world. And then they were followed by very stable or relatively stable periods during which a great deal of progress happened. You know, you and your colleagues have taken a very long view of history. And I'd be fascinated to know whether you think that the combination of the pandemic and the geopolitical situation, the war in Ukraine, the energy shock, is this an earthquake that could change the game, change the rules, leading to a new era with different characteristics? Yeah, I think that's a distinct possibility. And, and in addition to those three post-war earthquake examples, I think historians would think maybe going even further back to the Great Depression or 1914. Maybe maybe 1914 is kind of the, the scarier one to use as a as a counterpoint, because in a way, the, you know, it's the the thought is: Are we coming to the end of an era of globalization that has gone on for fifty some years or longer? And are we coming to the end of a unipolar kind of moment? You know, so now we're thinking of globalization 2.0 and the U.S. as the hegemon. Then it was globalization 1.0 and Britain as the hegemon. So those seem like even bigger earthquakes, relatively speaking, than you know, some of the events in the post-war period. I mean, you know, there was a Cold War and the, the Soviet Union had a great deal of military capacity, but economically it was never on track to to be a threat to the U.S. That kind of fizzled out in a way that maybe, you know, we, we didn't fully appreciate at the time. And, and now we're sort of seeing, again, Russia's military capability is capable of causing disruption out of proportion to its economic significance on the world stage. The parallel, the, the worrisome parallel, is that in 1914, people just had no idea that all of the things they took for granted about free trade and 
the movement of capital and organizing production on a global scale in the most efficient way and ignoring any risk of those links being severed by geopolitical events. All, all of that was a huge shock to the you know, the elite, if there had been a Davos in 1913, they would have been, you know, they would have been very surprised by that turn of, I mean, there was an equivalent of Davos. I mean, you go back and read that famous passage from John Maynard Keynes or, you know, you, any any kind of writing of the, of the political and economic leadership of the time, it, it's very clear how unanticipated that was to the, the historian or the economic historian that's the kind of, of parallel. But it also feels like we're a bit more wise about it this time, at least, you know, we've had five or six years of people worrying about has offshoring gone too far? Are we going to reshore, friendshore, blah, 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 shore? So it's it's out there. It's understood that there are trade-offs. I mean, maybe we have learned something from the events of, of the early 20th century, that we understand that even if there are economic benefits to changing the way we do transactions and the way we organize our system of production, there are risks like, you know, there are diversification benefits and putting all your eggs in one basket can be very, very risky, even if, you know, sometimes people, organizations, countries inadvertently do that. But yeah, that's that's kind of the disruption going forward that, you know, potentially has growth implications, political implications, implications for markets and, and interest rates and, and everything. We've just at MGI published a sort of updated view of our, our of global integration. And while there's a lot of speculation that the world is decoupling or deglobalizing, it seems to us that globalization is actually evolving rather than retreating. Trade intensity has definitely stabilized, trade and goods, but other flows of intangibles, of services, of people, what we're calling flows that are tied to knowledge and know-how, are really growing quite a lot. And that there isn't a single region, major region in the world that is, is not dependent on others. So there may be some recalibration, but it's going to take time and, and it's going to be quite difficult. Do you, do you buy that argument? I do. I, there's uh, partly almost a, a, an arithmetical feature of this, which is uh, over time economies do become more focused on production and consumption of, of services and, and m more intrinsically non-traded things. So it may seem like, well, why is trade not you know zooming up to infinity? Well, it, it sort of physically can't. And, and so there was always going to be that kind of likelihood, the potential for it leveling off. And we may be entering that stage where trade relative to GDP is at some high but sustainable level. The more interesting feature of what's going on now in response to some of these shocks and, and maybe for the next decade or two is, is the sense that we're going to see the structure changing. The aggregate volumes may not leap the way they did in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, but we're going to see big shifts for political or economic reasons as new countries enter the globalization kind of era for themselves, countries that were maybe previously very poor, very landlocked in some kind of, you know, political trouble or otherwise not engaged in the global economic system. It seems to me, you know, the East Asian tigers, the you know, those famous economies that embraced outward-looking development in the 16, 60s and 70s in Japan. That set the stage for China and other 
middle-income countries in Southeast Asia and elsewhere to follow that template. But it's not like the list of countries is exhausted. I mean, there's a massive number of countries still in Asia, but also in Africa and Latin America where that potential hasn't been been fully realized. And in particular, for the last 20 years, the, the entry of China into that competition for, for global markets has maybe set back the aspirations of lots of other countries. But that could be about to change for all of the political and economic reasons that people have been talking about as we, you know, as we come into this new era, post-COVID, post-G, what, you know, what will China's role be in terms of economic globalization going forward could be very different. You've mentioned green technologies, and in order for us to make the net zero transition a reality, we really do need the global flows to flow smoothly around the world, because the minerals that are needed for, say, you know, electric vehicle batteries or solar panels are found in very few places or sourced in very few places and processed in even fewer. So that to me sounds like the interdependency will continue at least for a while and that we have to keep working together to, you know, make net zero a reality. I mean, I think that's the right way to think about it. In the short run, it's very difficult to just, you know, dig a hole in the ground and find new sources of lithium or or rare earths or or whatever it is. Whether it's, you know, having enough energy now based on our um, carbon dependence or finding new sources of energy in the future or, or just developing our technologies, open markets, global free markets for certain key goods are going to be central, absent, you know, new sources in you know, preferable or safe locations. They're not going to magically happen right away. They might come online, but you can't take that for granted. So that is a political risk. I mean, if you think back, again, economic history is sitting on our shoulder here. If you think about the tensions leading up to World War One, but especially World War Two, a huge background force in World War Two for multiple combatants was access to resources, whether it's Germany trying to push into the Caucasus to get to the oil fields or Japan feeling like it's stretched in terms of its access to energy. I mean, lots of other factors too, but like that showed up in the way the world responded in the 40s and 50s in the kind of, you know, to use that hackneyed phrase, the international rules-based order. That actually is a thing that we built in the 50s and 60s to say, look, we had these wars and we realized that one of the major drivers of conflict and goes back to colonial times and you know way back millennia one of the major drivers of conflict has been fights for resources you know 1870s or you know franco-german wars over you know who's going to have the coal mines and things so it's a central tenet of the last 75 years that we may have our political disagreements as states and, and we may have rival, but we're still going to play by those rules and not start saying, well, you can have coal, you can't. You can have oil, you can't. You can have lithium, you can't. Because we've, we've always understood that those, if you cross those red lines, then you know, <laughs> people are starving or freezing or whatever they are. That's going to cause major conflict no matter what. So I think that is one of the sort of pessimistic takes, if you like, of, of, of the, the current moment. Are we going to forget that lesson and go back to rivalries over commodities and vital resources? I, I guess I've just made it sound worse than what you said. For you, it was like, is this going to hold up our transition to, to green technology and a happy future? I'm just worried it's going to take us back to, you know, the medieval period or something. 
Well, I, I needn't ask you what makes you pessimistic because I think you've answered that one. <laughs> oh, well, I, I, <laughs> well, I, you know, I try not to, I, on the whole, I'm not a pessimistic person, but I do think our, our politics globally and nationally are probably the one factor where we've sort of had rules of the game about how we interact with each other as countries, as states, and also how we interact with each other as individuals within the states. And it's not clear though that the center is going to hold there, but that 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 indeed is my that's that's my source of pessimism. But let's get that out of the way and talk about optimism. Yes. So, what makes you optimistic in this current rather difficult time? I think the main source of optimism now is is like what's carried us forward for the last fifty or two hundred years to a better place than where the human race began, which is human capital. And our knowledge, our education, our scientific and other non-scientific learning about like not just how to manage the world and the physical environment, but understanding our economics, our politics, and social and, and biological things. I mean, the just phenomenal advance in, in, in knowledge. When you see where we are now in the last couple of hundred years versus the previous millennia, you have to think, well, I'm really lucky to be alive now. And uh, if we can just understand that basis for what we have and build on that, there's a huge source of optimism because we have by no means made the best use of all of of the things that that people on this planet could do. I mean, in terms of achieving the highest levels of education and understanding, we've got so much upside there if we can only find a way to harness it. Speaking of human capital, I mean, you became an economist do you have anything else in your mind that you would have been if you hadn't been an economist? That, that's a, a good question. I mean, I've obviously jumped around a bit. I started off in mathematics and moved to economics. I, I mean, I, I kind of have a nerdy bent, despite you know having you know played sport and done other things and 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 you know dreamed of playing cricket for England. But those were probably not realistic things. I guess you know, in in my old age now, I'm kind of reading a lot more stuff, encouraged by a friend who's also into this about intelligence work, and security, and you know, certainly my intellectual ancestors at King's College Cambridge and elsewhere, who went down that path, another famous Alan, like they seem like inspiring heroic figures. You know, maybe working in the background but doing doing important work. So maybe something in in intelligence, something like that, could have been really really an interesting way to apply my nerdy uh, nerdy skills in a, in a different way. Well, I, I have to posit the um, possibility that you are actually working in intelligence, but you can't tell us about it. Um, yeah, I, 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 I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> so my final question, which we like asking, is if you had one piece of advice for our listeners, what would it be? That's a really good question. And I, I I think here I'll I'll try to like condense some wisdom from from economics from history even mathematics which is it's really hard but try to try to f- ignore the noise and focus on the signal and I think that's really good life advice in a lot of ways whether you know it's investing in markets or you know the consulting work of McKinsey and trying to see through the fog of data it's important in our personal lives not to sort of get uh, too kind of disturbed out of equilibrium by some short run event or, or so on. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm constantly clinging to this idea, you know, during COVID and these 
times of political disruption and saying, you know, what, what's really the long run picture here versus all of this extraneous stuff? And I, I think I'm going to be trying to <laughs> hold on to that advice in, in the years ahead. Absolutely. Well, well, Alan, it's been absolutely fascinating. And thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Janet. It's a pleasure. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.